Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian podcast. This one entitled, Naked Moments in History. The date, March 2021. My name, Bell Avis. Valued listener, I hope I have not drawn you into this podcast under false pretenses. The following content will unfortunately not include lascivious descriptions of Cleopatra or Matahari. And though Peter the Great is mentioned, he is not shirtless, chopping wood, or threshing wheat like some Russian version of BBC's Poldark in a fever dream. Instead, this will contain anecdotes and commentary on one of my favorite political expressions, the naked moment. I first heard of this term from former political operative David Gergen. He had the distinction of serving under four presidents, including representatives from both parties, and was able to see not just the impression displayed for public consumption, but the real person underneath. Of Gergen, a 1993 story from the New York Times, not a flattering one, by the way, provided this description. Over the course of 22 years, Gergen has traveled from White House to White House, from government to journalism, to punditry, and now back to government. And soon enough, you may bet on it back to journalism again. From the Democratic camp to the Republican to the Independent to the Democratic again. So perfectly is he of his time and place and class that he himself is part of the tribal language. Unquote. Regardless of the sniff-sniffing of this article, Gergen was uniquely placed to observe politicians of all stripes. And in his book, Eyewitness to Power, Gergen describes naked moments in which a person drops all of the pretense, all of the image-making or, or optics management, and reveals, in total, the real person who has been there all along. In Gergen's book, he calls out two naked moments relating to presidents under whom he served. The first was when Reagan was shot in 1981. Up until this point, Ronald Reagan's veneer of a strong and decisive man was perceived as that of an actor, Reagan's original occupation, playing a role. Then Reagan took a bullet an inch from his heart. Reagan was rushed into the operating room, and at that point he tells his doctors, quote, I just hope you're all Republicans, unquote. In this naked moment, the American people realize that the tough guy persona, the grace under pressure condition, was not an act, but was in fact the real man. Now, Gergen contrasts this with Bill Clinton. Amid accusations of a liaison in the Oval Office with intern Monica Lewinsky in 1995, Clinton famously told the nation, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Clinton later confessed, though, that he did, in fact, have a improper physical relationship with Monica Lewinsky, who was 24 years old at that time. What was of note to Gergen in Political Junkies was not just the lie, but the attitude behind it. Clinton looked right into the camera, he shook his fingers, and he provided what to appear to be real anger. It was as if, at that moment, he truly believed his false statement. Gergen notes, this is a naked moment because this was the genuine Bill Clinton, not the cool guy playing sax on late night TV or the genial frat boy. 
Rather, a man moved to anger when his word and actions were questioned, when caught out for his own transgressions. One person close to both Bill Clinton and his wife Hillary described them as reversed lobsters. Hillary was hard on the outside, but, surprising giving her own public perception, capable of genuine warmth. But Bill Clinton was the opposite. The man who famously said, I feel your pain, was rock hard on the inside. And this moment revealed his true nature. These moments are not just relegated to the political sphere. At his Hall of Fame speech, Michael Jordan dropped his carefully cultivated image of the happy player to use the platform to assail all of his critics and perceived enemies. Now, we had heard stories of this Jordan from coaches and fellow players, but it was always kept behind closed locker room doors and covered up by his many publicists and by Nike. But in this speech, there he was, the authentic Jordan, who, by sheer force of competitive will, won six titles in six tries. Can one be the best basketball player ever without a malevolent spirit? Maybe, but Jordan showed that, at his core, he was not that nice guy portrayed in his Hanes underwear commercials. We can even apply naked moments to corporations. Disney portrays a family-friendly, approachable image to the public. But go ahead, just try to create a logo that even vaguely resembles Mickey Mouse and you will face the authentic Disney and its phalanx of lawyers. A ruthless corporation that preaches equality, well, and equity too now, but understands that 20% of their revenue emanates from China. Thus, the naked Disney chooses to look the other way at the Uyghur's oppression or those in Hong Kong in favor of meeting revenue goals. Now, I'm on all, I am all in favor of corporations making money. As certain politicians dislike to admit, that is the ultimate purpose of a corporation from which all the other additional good things stem. But Disney is also the first to express woke views and castigate supposed ills in our society. It is not the profit motive, but the hypocrisy that galls. And here we come to a naked moment, not of a president, but rather that of a U.S. senator. Then this being the famous senator and one-time presidential candidate, Elizabeth Warren. In a recent tweet, that platform of so much circumspection and thoughtfulness and statesmanship, Warren goes after Amazon in general and Jeff Bezos in particular. Quote, I didn't write the loopholes you exploit, Amazon. Your armies of lawyers and lobbyists did. But you bet I'll fight to make you pay your fair share and fight your union busting and fight to break up big tech so you're not powerful enough to heckle senators with snotty tweets. Unquote. The, the first part we get, the typical bloviation of the left Union busting? She makes Bezos sound like a latter-day Henry Frick, bringing in an army of Pinkertons to bash some skulls. All Amazon is doing is discouraging artificial wages that will drive up consumers' costs and weaken its own business model. Want to know how those industries with strong unions are doing? Oh, they're great. Think of all those newly minted Harvard business graduates pining to work for General Motors, U.S. Steel, or United Airlines. Forget Apple. That is the direct result of unions, but I digress. It is that last part of the note that reveals Warren's truly naked moment. She is essentially implying that she will use the coercive power of government to stop the, quote, heckling, unquote, of, quote, senators, 
unquote, and snotty ones as well. One of the hallmarks of leftist thinking, and unfortunately increasingly an attitude on the right, is that their policies are not just the best possible outcome in a political or economic sense, but rather an immoral one. Controlled immigration is what is best for the nation, and it's best for the immigrants as well. But when looked at through a moral lens, any attempt to turn back any immigrant becomes immoral, and thus it is morality, not common sense, which drives policy. The left will look at capitalism and still see poverty, but in pre-capitalist societies, or ones entirely socialist, the poor comprise the vast majority of the population, as much as 80 to 90%. In capitalist societies, the opposite is the case. But to the moral grandstander, any poor, anywhere, is immoral. And vast governmental programs, such as the Great Society, need to be enacted, regardless of their efficiency or historical examples. This morality confers upon the moral a justification to enact these programs and shield one from criticism of their policies. Warren, the leftist moral archetype, states that she is immune from criticism in a free republic. Isn't that what she's really saying in that tweet? Now, she said at one point that she was a capitalist. She said at one point that she was open to criticism. And yet, isn't in that tweet reveal the true Elizabeth Warren the, the one kind of hiding underneath all of the hyperbole and all of those plans that she presented back in 2019, isn't the real one basically saying, you can't heckle me. I'm not only a U.S. senator, but I am right, darn it. And you shut up. She is immune not just because of her moral positions, but because of her institutional role as a senator. A good argument could be made that as an elected politician, she should expect more criticism not less, but her governmental role in her mind represents the opposite. And of course, there's that one thing about why an elected official would endure more criticism, because they work for the people and not the other way around. In a previous piece that I posted to my website, conservativehistorian.com, in August 2019, I compared the real-life Warren to the fictional Dolores Umbridge, from the Harry Potter series. What a wonderful name. At the time, it was more about Warren's voluminous plans to change our society to her version of what is best for us. But it is not the plans nor the attitudes that make the fictional umbrage or the real-life Warren so frightening. Instead, it is their certitude. Whether Umbridge's brow-beating colleagues, cowing students at Hogwarts, or jailing opponents, or hurling epitaphs, she never doubts. And those, without doubt, should not have to endure the criticisms of their inferiors, whether it be the world's richest man or, in this case, some podcaster sending up material once per week. And I love the snotty term, as if Bezos were some petulant child in need of a spanking. Progressives like Warren actually do see the American people as similar to children and themselves as the adults, of course. Hence, the reversion to a term better apply to a sassy seven-year-old who will not eat their government-approved organic kale. In Warren's world, Bezos, Fox News, AM Radio, and eventually yours truly, would not be able to heckle her or anyone she deems of unworthiness. This is the real Elizabeth Warren. 
Now, this dichotomy between a public persona and the real person is not unique to recent American politicians, but has been endemic throughout history. Henry II. I always like talking about Henry II. He's really one of those fascinating English kings. He reigned over England, Ireland, and pretty much half of France in the late 12th century. And as one of those kings, because of his personality and the events around him, has been portrayed on film not once but twice, and by the same great actor, the late great Peter O'Toole. Such was his fame that in the late, such was his fame. In the late 1100s, the church was a highly powerful entity. So Henry, a clever man, made a rare misjudgment by making his friend, Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury. The goal was to put an ally in the church to circumscribe their power and enhance the power of the crown. The problem was that upon taking up his post, Becket, well, well, he found religion and became a champion of the church. Part of his position was to attack those bishops who he thought were favoring his old patron against the interests of the church, and he began excommunicating those bishops. This in turn led to Henry's most famous quote, Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? This utterance, expressed in 1170, led to four of Henry's knights doing that very thing, murdering Becket and leading to a calamity with European-wide implications. And it didn't end well for Henry. It is hard to realize the church's political and economic power in the 12th century in our current secular society. These prelates did not report to a national government, but rather to the Catholic Church itself. For a dominant personality such as Henry, you know in his heart of hearts he would love to have replaced church power with his own. Henry shared a massive frustration with European rulers ranging from Charlemagne until the advent of the modern age, in which these rulers were always in competition with the power of the church, which operated independently. There was always this continual friction between these rulers and the church. And in fact, Henry's own son, King John, lost just such a struggle with Pope Innocent III about 40 years after the death of Becket. But wishing a thing and doing it are two different things. And by expressing his thoughts openly, Henry revealed the true nature of his heart. He had a naked moment at the wrong time and in front of the wrong group of knights. Had those knights said to him, so do you really want us to do the deed? Or were they just operating on their own thinking that, well, Henry can't exactly order it, and if we don't do it, we might be in trouble. It never occurred to Henry to simply say to those four men, you know, I'm just thinking this, right? I don't really mean this. But he didn't. Nobody, even at that time, fundamentally believed that Henry directly ordered that Becket be killed, but his words still started a chain of events that likely to have such a result. Becket's murder hurt Henry more than his living intransigence, but in openly expressing this, maybe even under the influence of alcohol, Henry was showing his true naked thoughts. Frederick II of Prussia, also known by the epithet the Great, liked to convey the enlightened ruler's image. He lived in the 1700s, so the Enlightenment was in full swing at the time of his reign. He brought in French advisors, built his palace in the most modern styles, and enjoyed a friendship with none, none other than Voltaire, one of the leading lights of the, of the Enlightenment. Rather than expressing his ability to rule as a God-given right, his Enlightenment training was described more as a servant than a ruler. This is a quote from Frederick. 
A prince is only the first servant of the state who is obliged to act with probity and prudence as the sovereign is properly the head of a family of citizens, the father of his people. He ought on all occasions to be the last refuge of the unfortunate. Frederick also noted that the greatest and noblest pleasure which men can have in this world is to discover new truths and the next is to shake off old prejudices. Enlightenment? Hmm. When Frederick decided to seize the mineral-rich Silesia from the Austrians, he showed his actual thinking. The next two uh, phrases, which are really kind of taken a little bit different from the Enlightenment ones, show the true Frederick. Quote, the people say what they like, and then I do what I like. Unquote. And one of my favorites, quote, God is always with the strongest battalions. For all of his seeming adherence to the Enlightenment, he seized Silesia on the flimsiest of pretexts because it was a rich province, and the owner was a 23-year-old woman new to rulership of her Austrian domains, Maria Theresa of the Habsburgs. Frederick did not seize Silesia because he was wanting to help people or provide servitude to them. He did because it was rich. It connected other of his domains, and the timing was right. Additionally, he did not keep Silesia because of the morality of his cause, because, but because he was really good at war. Naked moments need not always be about the spoken word, but rather by action. Peter I Romanov of Russia, also known as the Great, was famously the Tsar who brought Russia into the West. Peter built Russia's first natural navy, updated the army, and won many military victories. On land, he conquered from Sweden his main antagonist, a area of land upon which he established the city of St. Petersburg, and then moved the capital there from Moscow. Moscow was backward and eastern. He even imposed a tax on beards to make his nobles look more western. He even dictated their dress. Gone were the long robes of old, and in came dress coat and pants, though it was noted that this innovation meant more shivering subjects. Because what works in France does not necessarily work in the northern Russian forests. He was reputed to be six foot six inches tall and had the energy and strength of two ordinary men. Peter's predecessor, however, Ivan IV, his sobriquet was the terrible. Not quite so flattering. Personally, I'd rather have the great than the terrible. But Peter, like Ivan, was, was linked together by one singular act. Both of these men murdered their sons. As noted by historian Jesse Greenspan, upon being accused of plotting against Peter, Alexei, Peter's son, was jailed, put on trial, and tortured. Most sources state that he was whipped 25 times on a single day, and that when the torture started up again five days later, he confessed, then he confesses, to conspiring for the death of his father who wouldn't confess under such circumstances. And then, shortly thereafter, Alexei died of his wounds. For all of Peter's concept of bringing the West to Russia and Western civility and culture, the real Peter still acted very much like his orthodox, ruthless, and totalitarian predecessor, Ivan the Terrible. These historical examples are not just about duplicity and treachery, this piece does not contain comments on Benedict Arnold or Brutus or Judas, for that matter. These were figures who were one thing 
And then, when faced with some form of adversity, they converted into something else, most often due to frustrated ambitions. Instead, this subject is more about those who present a well-constructed facade, but are something entirely different underneath. Now, lying is part of the human DNA, however much we wish that that were not so. Instead, this is about the ability to discern what individuals want the world to see and what is really there. Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz is not just a fantastic work because it contains witches and talking scarecrows, but like the best literature, it also contains lessons and insight. Now, the entrepreneurial Oscar Diggs, better known as the wizard himself, is the archetype of the man, quote, hiding behind a curtain, unquote. He seems to project strength, power, and fear while he's Oz, but in reality, he is more of a country huckster than a Peter the Great. I have cited Elizabeth Warren above, but we turn to the uber-popular Obamas. They're just such a rich trove. Both Brock and Michelle for some of our most fun naked moments. Much has made a Brock statement about Republicans and that they, quote, cling to guns and religion, unquote. But think about the verb. Cling implies gripping on something for dear life. And what it really did is, is it conveyed not only Obama's superiority and his arrogance, but also his secret contempt for religion. This is a man who supposedly attended a church for 20 years. Really? Cling to religion? It is almost as if Obama is saying, oh, those little people clinging to their little beliefs. But for sheer nakedness, nothing says true persona like Michelle Obama's 2009, quote, for the first time I am proud of America, unquote. The nation that sent her to the Ivy League in a seven-figure salary was not worthy of her pride. Only when her husband became the presidential nominee was a time for gratitude. This kind of attitude really wasn't evident at first. She very carefully cultivated an image of being the true American, but all along hiding a contempt for her own nation. What is even of greater concern than the utterance of these progressive politicians is that more and more our politics themselves are about these veneers and patinas rather than what, about what is really there. In all of our historical divides, the actual issues were readily apparent. Hamilton wished for greater governmental control to drive the economy and create a stronger union. Jefferson countered by looking to the rights of individuals above that union. Andrew Jackson wished to eliminate the United States Second Bank because he thought it was too powerful and too intrusive. His opponents believe the bank was incremental to the economic growth of the republic. Lincoln was against slavery, suggesting in 1858 that a divided house cannot stand. Stephen Douglas thought its elimination would lead to a permanent dissolution of the Union, and Southern politicians at the time, Jefferson Davis among them, simply wanted to preserve the slaves because they wanted their economic rules kept in place. Again, the lines in the terms of the debates in all these areas was crystal clear. Woodrow Wilson wanted more government intervention because he thought the republic's industrialization warranted it. His opponent stated that Wilson's vision was too intrusive. Franklin Roosevelt wanted governmental intervention in the light of the Great Depression. As much as conservatives would oppose those expansions, again, the terms of the debate were clear. Today, 
they are not so clear. Today, they exist under veils and patinas and veneers. The Green New Deal, a radical infrastructure bill, is sold to solve racial issues. The recent $1.9 trillion bill was sold as a COVID preventative, even though only 25% of the money within the bill is directly related to the pandemic. The H.R. 1 voting bill is presented to prevent voter suppression, though in the recent 2020 election, Joe Biden and not Donald Trump was elected in Georgia, once a bastion of the Republicans, once a bastion of the Old South, two Democratic senators, one an African-American, was elected. If suppression were real, the results would presumably have gone the other way. And the filibuster is described as a Jim Crow relic, accepting that the first filibuster was enacted 60 years before Jim Crow in 1837. And the Democrats themselves made consistent use of the filibuster over the past four years, including as recently as 2019 and 2020. History, as presented today, is one of American evil, despite this nation having elevated more humans out of poverty and into prosperity and liberty than any nation before it. In all of these cases, nothing that is shown is what it is. It is up to us in a free society to see through the false narratives, through the thin veils, and through the obvious obfuscations to see the real story, the naked story, even if, as in the case of Warren, the view may be pretty hard to look at. This is Bell Avis. Thank you so much for listening to the Conservative Historian Podcast. If you wish to see or uh, listen to more podcasts, go to our website, www.conservativehistorian.com. As always, thank you.